What is prayer? Stale tradition? Ritual? A good luck charm? Part of some religious checklist? Done to appease a higher being so we can get what we want? Or at least avoid the lightning bolt? Prayer has been redefined and twisted and confused. But at its essence, prayer is simply talking to God. The God who spoke the universe into creation, who gives us life and breath, who holds all things together. This God wants us to talk to him. In the vastness of all that exists, he actually cares about us, personally, individually. How can we not pray to such a loving God, wherever we are? How can we not thank him for what he's done or cry out when we need help, when we need forgiveness, when we're afraid, when we give thanks for our blessing or question where our next meal will come from? Why would we live a life apart from him? It's not about formula. How could any posture or well-chosen word impress the author of time and space? Simple obedience. God has made himself available to us. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to trust in him, to acknowledge our dependence on him, to draw near to the one who loved us first. Approaching with confidence because Christ has torn away the veil. He's washed away the sin that kept us from his presence. And we live in relationship with our Lord. And so we ask that his kingdom come, his will be done on earth and in our lives as it is in heaven. That is prayer. Good morning, church. You know, most of us have probably heard of uh, C.S. Lewis. He was the... uh, author of widely known uh, children's books, and he authored the uh, Narnia Chronicles, and as, as well, he was the author of many novels and, and uh, books for, for adults and grown-ups. And he wrote a lot about uh, issues surrounding the Christian faith. There's a movie called The Shadowlands, and it tells the story of, of C.S. Lewis's life. And it focuses on his relationship with his wife, Joy Gresham. Joy and C.S. Lewis met while Lewis was a professor at Oxford University. After Joy is diagnosed with cancer, the couple marry, and the movie invites us to witness their love and their pain, their grief, their struggles with faith and with God. Eventually, Joy passes away, and at one point in the story, a friend says to C.S. Lewis, I know how hard you've been praying, and I believe God will answer your prayers. And Lewis replies, That's not why I pray, Harry. I pray because I can't help myself. I pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time. 
waking and sleeping. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes me. We're launching a a series, four straight weeks focused in teaching, and and we're going to be doing a lot of different things this month to focus us as a church on the, the important value of prayer. And if you were to ask me, why are we raising the value of prayer up with such tenacity and focus and clarity, I would say the single greatest privilege throughout history is the open invitation to turn toward heaven in any circumstance of your life and to ask God for help. Now I understand we are fully capable of complicating the whole notion of prayer. I've done it myself many times. I've tied myself up in philosophical and theological knots so badly I couldn't even pray. But when Jesus came to earth and he saw thousands of weary, beaten down people losing their daily battles in life, he shook his head and he said to the people, you should pray more. That's what you should do. You should pray. You should ask. You should seek. You should knock. There is no good reason you should fend off all the help that heaven is willing to send your way. There's no good reason why you should be trying to do all these things in human strength alone. You weren't designed for that. Church, why why don't we ask for heaven's help? Why don't we seek heaven's guidance? Why don't we knock if we need God to open a door for us? You know, as I look at all the challenges and all the complexities facing all of you these days here at Grace, I think it's time we ratchet up our prayer lives. I think it's time we ratchet up our asking and our seeking and our knocking. What what battle are you facing today? Are you standing before a powerful enemy and you don't know what to do? A physical enemy like disease? An emotional enemy like depression or an addiction? A family battle? a, A teenager that's in rebellion? A husband that's lost? What battle are you facing today? Does your situation feel overwhelming? Do you feel ill-equipped? Does the enemy seem too powerful to overcome? You know, this morning in Exodus chapter 17, we read about Moses who was in an overwhelming situation. So let me just give you the context of where we're going to be today in Exodus chapter uh, 17, excuse me. God has delivered His people out of slavery from Egypt. And He's taking them to the promised land. But in between, they are going through a wilderness time. They are going through a wilderness experience where they will learn how to depend upon God, how to worship God, how to obey God. They've had to trust God for their daily needs of food and water. And now, they will have to trust God in a battle against a ferocious enemy. And this will be the first battle Israel will have to fight as a nation since they were slaves in Egypt. They never had to fight the Egyptians. 
God fought that battle for them. Israel never lifted a sword to fight that battle to get out of slavery. But this battle is going to be different. So Exodus chapter 17, let's begin in verse 8. It says, While the people of Israel were still at Remedim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. The Amalekites were descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. Amalek was Esau's grandson. So the rivalry, if you know the story, the rivalry between Jacob and Esau was generational. It continued on after their death. The Amalekites were a brutal enemy, an enemy that fought dirty. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, Moses tells us about a time that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites for no reason, and they did it in a very cowardly way. They attacked all the women and the children. They didn't confront the soldiers of Israel. They went after the civilians. A great picture of the enemy that we face spiritually. Can I just say that the enemy we face spiritually does not fight fair. He fights dirty, he's a coward, and he's coming after us with everything that he's got, and he's going to find your weakest point, your weakest place, and he's going to hit that weakness as hard as he can. This same dirty, cowardly, ruthless enemy launches a surprise attack against the people of Israel at Remedim. Moses sees this army storming over the hillside, swords drawn, archers ready to darken the skies with their deadly arrows, and Moses knows that this is going to be an old-fashioned massacre. Moses is thinking, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, they could be dead by sundown. Tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people under his leadership could be involved in a bloodbath and be dead in just a short time. Moses knows his troops are not ready for battle. They've been wandering around. They've been slaves for a long time. They, they haven't been training. They're not warriors. The women and the children are just moments away from freaking out and adding to the chaos that makes a surprise attack like this so lethal. He has no time to spare, so he turns to the three guys that he trusts the most in crisis situations like this, and he gives them crystal clear direction. He says, Joshua, you sound the battle cry, round up as many soldiers as you can, and head out to meet the enemy. And so Joshua is off and running. He's full of courage. He's full of optimism. But Joshua has no idea how badly this could all go. At this time, in this story, Moses is 80 years old. He turns to his 83-year-old brother, Aaron, and then he looks to her, their aging brother-in-law, and he says, we need to do what we need to do. So these three old guys, they find a nearby hill and do you remember what they did? Did they direct the battle from that hillside? Did they throw down rocks on the enemy? Did they curse their circumstances? None of the above. They do what two-year-olds do. 
when they're standing next to a parent and something scares them and makes them feel vulnerable. They put their hands up and they look to God for help. Here's Moses, 80 years old, doing what a two-year-old does when a two-year-old gets scared. Moses sees the bloodthirsty enemy army advancing. Joshua is greatly outnumbered. It's going to be a slaughter. And Moses makes the strategic decision and he realizes the way he can serve his people best, the best way he can help the military effort is for him to stand on top of a hill and put his hands up like a two-year-old and ask for God's help. God, we need your supernatural help or we're done. Do you have a, a strategy to overcome? Do you have crystal clear direction? Have you given the people around you crystal clear direction? Have you put your hands up and asked for heaven's help? As Joshua and his army were battling this overwhelming army, Exodus 17.11 says that whenever Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the enemy prevailed. When they were put up like a two-year-old, Israel prevailed. But when he put his hands down, the enemy prevailed. The momentum of the battle that they were facing was directly correlated to the location of Moses' hands. When they're up, Israel prevails. When they're down, the enemy prevails. Church, I love, I love the picture that is painted for, for us here. I love the imagery. Catch this. If you catch nothing else, catch this. The tide of your life's battles hinges on the location of your hands. I am here, church, to bear witness to the fact that the entire way I experience my life on a daily, week-to-week, month-to-month basis is affected by the location of my hands. The location of my hands makes a tremendous difference in the tide of the battles of my life and the quality of my life. I could take you back to times in my life where my hands were raised like a two-year-old. And they were raised fervently and expectantly and frequently. They were raised believing that the heart of God was good towards me. They were raised believing that God was kind and that He wanted to help me. Man, when I've been in those seasons in my life, I could tell you about the richness of my relationship with God. I could tell you about the sense of His anointing favor, His power. I could tell you about His presence in my life. I'm not saying there was no troubles or hardships or trials during those seasons. I'm just saying when my hands were raised like this, the momentum of the battles in my life 
went God's way. And I felt the overwhelming presence of God in my life despite the circumstances. Can you remember? Can you remember a time like that in your life? I want to share an example with you and a story from my own life. It was the 4th of July back in 2009. And we had just gotten home from the parade, the 4th of July parade in Bayfield. And I grabbed a glass of water and I sat down to take a little break. And the boys were playing outside. Two of them were playing outside. Two of them were playing inside. And Trisha was in the bedroom and she was getting ready so we could head off to our next function. And as I sat there, I just happened to look out of the corner of my eye to the other side of our living room and Caden, our youngest son, was laying on the floor face down. And at first I thought he was just sleeping, but then I knew something wasn't right. His body was twitching and I just knew something wasn't right. And I rushed over there and I, I scooped him up in my arms and his skin was very blue. I mean, he was turning blue. He wasn't getting oxygen. And I hollered for Trisha and she came running into the living room and she knew something wasn't right. And she checked his airways to make sure he wasn't choking on something. And his airways were clear, but he still was turning blue. Church, something happened in that moment I will never in my life forget. Without giving it much thought, I stood up and I raised my hands to heaven. And I began asking for God's help. God, would you deliver my son? God, help. Help us. While I was praying, Trisha was given Caden CPR. Man, whenever I read this story of Moses, I can't help but think back to that scary moment in our living room. Joshua was fighting the battle practically while Moses was asking for heaven's help. Trisha was administering CPR to little Caden while I was asking for God to intervene. Church, this is so important for us to get as Christians. Both are necessary. Both are so critical. We need the practical army. We need the practical help. But we also need to call on heaven's help. As I prayed... And as Trisha practically helped, Caden began to breathe. I immediately called 911 and, and we began the long journey to get Caden the medical help that he needed. And he will probably kick you in the shins sometime today. Okay? He's okay. He made it. It was a season in my life where my first reaction in a extremely difficult situation was to lift my hands in prayer. A season I'll never forget. A season that I just want to remain in. But let, let me be honest, church. 
Otherwise, if I'm not honest, I think I'll have to hand in my pastor badge. Unfortunately, I can take you to seasons in my life where my hands were at my side most of the time. I didn't, I didn't feel close to God. Maybe it was an independent spirit. Maybe it was I can do it myself kind of season. And when my hands were down, the momentum of my life's battles began to turn the other way. And after some time, I would come to my senses and I would say, what's happening to me? Like, why am I, who am I becoming? Why am I acting this way? And then I would check the location of my hands and they were right here. They were right here. I was in a, I'll do it myself mode. I got this. I got this. And this begs the question of why? If raised hands positively change the tide of your life's battles, why would we ever lower them? And Exodus 17 speaks directly to this. Let's look at verse 12. It says, Moses' arms soon became tired. Even though great things happened when his hands were raised, he was a human being. He was a normal guy. He was an 80-year-old guy, and his hands grew tired, and they eventually went from here to here. He could no longer hold them up in his own strength. Every honest Christ follower that I've talked to about prayer can describe at least one season of prayerlessness in their life. Am I the only person? has experienced a season like that? It's okay, you can talk back. Maybe you prayed weeks, months, years, decades, and there came that point when you just said, my hands are tired. You, you never cursed God about it. You didn't abandon your basic beliefs in the Christian faith or the goodness of God. You, you just simply lowered your hands to your side and you said, I'm tired. I'm just, I'm not going to ask God anymore. I've asked him too much. I'm not going to ask anymore. Am I the only person who's grown tired at times in their prayer life? Later on in this series, this four-week prayer series, we're going to explore the mystery of unanswered prayers. And I don't want you to miss a single week of this series. Man, be here. It's going to be it's going to be vital for our church. Let's go back to the hillside and let's see what Moses does when his hands grow tired. Verse 12 goes on to say, When Moses' hands grew tired, Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. Then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands, so his hands held steady until sunset. This is another beautiful image I want you to carry in your mind. The first is, is Moses lifting up his hands in, in the air and asking God for help. And the second is Aaron and her holding up his arms because Moses couldn't hold them up alone. He couldn't hold them up in his own strength. This is such a beautiful image. These two old guys supporting and realizing that Moses 
was running out of steam. And they say, you're not in this alone, Moses. You're not in this alone. We're here to help, Moses. We'll stay here as long as you do. And what a picture. Remember when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? Feeling the overwhelming weight of the redemptive work that he was about to do on the cross? His arms began to get tired. So he went off to the side to pray and he asked Peter, James, and John to come with him to support him in prayer, to to hold up his hands. Overwhelming circumstances, overwhelming troubles, overwhelming prayer burdens often require arm bearers. You know, when followers of Jesus Christ get to that place where their arms are weak and tired and they don't know if they can hold them up anymore, they humbly reach out to a few brothers or sisters and they say, can you hold up my arms for a little while? I'm not asking you to do this forever, but I'm in a short season of need. If you could just help me for a little while, just hold up my arms, and it would really help. It would really encourage me. And let me just say, church, when you feel the errands and the hers of your life joyfully holding up your arms, it is an unforgettable experience. It's Christian community at its very, very best. Who's holding up your arms? Do you have any errands or hers in your life? And just as important, do you know a Moses whose arms are aching? Do you know someone in your circle of acquaintances who's carrying a heavy burden right now and maybe... Their arms are getting tired. Do you know someone whose doorstep you could just appear on without necessarily calling first? Or someone's office that you could just walk into and say, Hey man, can I pray with you? Can I pray for you? Can I help to hold up your hands? How how can you hold up someone's arms this week? How can you support that person who's growing weary and tired? What if we prayed for each other more earnestly? What if we said, I'm going to pray for the tide of your marriage battle to change. I'm going to pray for the tide of your work battle to change. I'm going to pray for the tide of your health battles to change. Man, they would walk away from that conversation. They would get in their car and drive away, and they would realize... I'm not in this alone. I'm not all by myself. Let's see what happened. When Moses kept his hands up with the help of Aaron and her. Verse 13. As a result, as a result of prayer, and as a result of true Christian community, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. There is power when your hands are raised to God. There is great power. 
We plan, we prepare, we pray, we support one another, but it's God who brings the victory. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And these three old-timers standing up on that hillside, they didn't pray little drive-by prayers. They didn't huddle up for ten minutes and call it good. Verse 12 says, They held his hand steady until sunset. These three guys fought for God's intervention on that hilltop. They battled all day in prayer. They endured an entire day and on into the evening. And here's Moses, his arms aching. These two old guys holding up his arms. The sun is setting in the background. And in my imagination, I, I see Joshua and all the soldiers returning victorious from battle and they're filing past that hilltop and they're looking up and they're seeing those three old timers up there. And they say, hey, we did what we had to do on the battlefield, but you did the most important part of the battle because we could tell every time you had your hands up, we prevailed. Every time you let them down, we got slaughtered. So young Joshua and all his soldiers realized, man, there is power when your hands are raised in the air to God. There is power in that. We saw it on the battlefield. We experienced it. And I want to say one last time, the momentum or the tide of your life's battles hinge on the location of your hands. I'll do it myself, hands. Or I need your help, God, hands. You know, some of you who consistently live your life with your hands raised, you're going to receive additional inspiration throughout this series to continue in prayer, to spread the vision of prayer through, you know, all over the church and in your small groups. Your desire is to get everybody like this, that we're moving forward in a dependent upon God. But some of you, you've had your hands at your sides and you can't figure out why you're constantly losing battles. Throughout this series, you're going to be lovingly reminded and challenged that you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to trust the Lord. You need to trust in His wisdom. You need to trust in His power. Trust that He is good. He is for you. He is not against you. He wants to help you. That's his desire. He wants to help. But remember, like C.S. Lewis said, prayer doesn't change God. It changes you. Yes, trust the Lord. And when he speaks, you need to obey. You need to surrender. You need to humble yourself. You need to realize that you can't do it yourself. And I encourage you to trust and to obey the Lord. And when you do, you're going to find out there is a God who loves you, who takes great delight 
in helping his children. And you're going to live your life a lot more like this. Surrendered and dependent upon him. This is a four-week series. And I'm asking you, church, to make a commitment. Make a decision. And we need more of that in our society. Make a commitment to be here at all possible. Be here all four weeks. Because we need this as a church. We need it desperately. Would you do that? Would you make the decision? Would you make a commitment to be here? I hope you will. I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to take communion together as a church. Father God, thank you for the example of Moses. I'm thankful that we can see that beautiful picture of his hands raised to you. He was asking for deliverance. He was asking to be rescued. He was asking for your intervention. I also love the picture that was painted, Lord, of Aaron and her on either side holding up his arms. Lord, help us to realize that we cannot do this fight of life in our own strength, in our own power. We have to have the support of others. We have to have Christian community. Father, I pray that we would do the most important work spiritually, fighting the battle through prayer, but I also pray that we would do the practical things too. We wouldn't just sit back and say, God, take care of everything. We would be prepared. We would be ready. The horse would be armed up for battle. But we would never, ever forget that it's God. It's you, Jesus. It's you, Father. It's you, Holy Spirit, who brings the victory. I pray that you would be the captain of our lives. In Jesus' name, Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.